This morning's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would bless us, Guide us, O Lord, with your word and with your spirit. Amen. There are certain phrases with which we are all familiar. We hear them as children. We speak them as adults. They go like this. Tie your shoes. Tuck in your shirt. Don't eat with your mouth full. Take out the garbage. Mow the lawn. Shovel the driveway. Don't bother your sister. Maybe you've heard some of these phrases this morning. Now, if you had grown up on Long Island, there would be another phrase you would know. Driving to the beach while playing in the ocean, I would often hear my father exclaim this from the sand. It went like this. Resist the undertow. The undertow is that current of water that after hitting the shore it rushes back underneath and it pulls upon your feet and it brings you to places to which you don't anticipate going. You're throwing the frisbee with some friends, the waves are rolling, and then within 20 minutes you look up and find yourself quite a distance away from where you started. The undertow can be dangerous. It pulls on you, and you need to stand firm. You need to resist it consciously. It seems to me that this principle that applies to aquatic recreation is also true in our faith. That there is an undercurrent of sin and death that pulls upon the human soul. It emerges from the wellsprings of our sinful hearts, It comes in upon us from the world in which we live, and it comes from the evil one who swims around like a shark, seeking whom he may drown. We consecrate our lives to Christ. We say, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Lord, I am yours. And then weeks pass and months pass, and very often we find ourselves far away from God, and we wonder, how did I get here? Well, on this day, January 2nd, we can look back to this past year and consider how we have perhaps drifted, and then look forward to the upcoming months and consider how to implement disciplines of faith that will enable us to stand firm and resist the current of sin 
and death. Now, that's what I'd like to explore with you this morning. How can we stand firm according to the resources of God's grace? Well, for the answer, we look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. There's a problem in the Philippian church. False teachers have infiltrated the ranks. They're undermining the gospel of grace. They're preaching this message which says that you have to observe religious stipulations in order to work out your faith in Christ. And in doing so, they've nullified the cross. So Paul writes this letter, warning them, admonishing the Philippians, this church that he loved so very much. And he begins in verse 17 by holding up the importance of a godly example. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, Paul is clear about the fact that he's imperfect. He says so in verse 12 of this very chapter. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, he says. And yet, insofar as Paul's life is directed at Jesus and the gospel, he is an example that the believers in Philippi were to follow. And this is true not only of Paul, but for the other leaders in Philippi as well. And he says, keep your eyes on such people. It's more than a passing glance, than a peek. It's a sustained study. It's what I do when I'm around Pastor Wendell Hawley. You look at the person. You listen to how they speak. You see how they exhibit Christ-like character. It's powerful. Let me give you one example. When I was a student in seminary, our pastor, Dorrington Little, was a great mentor. And on Wednesday night, I was teaching an evangelism class, and beside me was another classroom in which this lady was teaching. It was her 40th birthday. She was a single young woman, and she wasn't happy about it. She was downright mad because the church had failed to provide her with an overhead projector and other equipment she needed, and she was just upset. Well, Dory happened to be walking by, and she got his attention, and she laid into him. She chewed him out right there in front of everyone. And I remember as a seminarian looking at this scene thinking, I am now going to learn a lesson on how to discipline a congregant who is out of line, because she clearly was. But I'll tell you what, that's not at all what I saw. What I saw was a pastor who looked into this woman's heart and saw her pain. He sacrificed himself in order to love her and spoke with, to her with gentleness and kindness and built her up and shepherded her heart. And I'll tell you that on that day, my paradigm for pastoral ministry was born. That's the power of a godly example. And we need it. Because as it says in verse 18, For many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These are the people who have left the church at Philippi 
for the false teaching. They've turned their back on the light of Christ's presence, and now they're walking in the darkness of their own shadow. And in doing so, they've become enemies of the cross of Christ. But notice how Paul describes them. He says of them that he sheds tears. Isn't this extraordinary? I mean, you can, you can hardly think of a worse place to be than be an enemy of Christ, and yet Paul cries for them. It said of the late Francis Schaeffer that when he spoke of hell and those going to hell, he often did so with tears in his eyes. I wrote Lane Dennis this week. Lane was a student of Schaefer and asked, is this true? I don't want to propagate an urban legend on Sunday morning. Did this really happen? And he wrote back and said, yes, it did. I observed it on numerous occasions. And I think, how beautiful, how right, that according to God's grace, we would have that measure of sympathy and compassion. When I was uh, an intern several years ago, In West Palm Beach, Florida, a woman said to me that she was driving down to the Keys in order to meditate there and synchronize her mind with the dolphins. And after she left, I laughed my head off because it seemed like the funniest thing in the world, waiting for the dolphins to swim by. And I happened to be with a friend of mine, and while I was laughing, he turned to me and said, it's easy to laugh. But can you cry? Can you shed a tear over how sad it is that a woman would try to find meaning and consolation in dolphin meditation? Well, this is the example of Paul for the false teachers. And he goes on to say in verse 19 of these people, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This fourfold description. Their end is destruction. You would expect this. If Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and someone turns from Jesus, then there is no way to receive forgiveness. There is no place from which one can enjoy new life. And so their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Your God is anything that you submit to. Whatever you surrender your will and affections to, that is, in a sense, your God. And if you don't have Christ, if you don't have the Spirit living within you, then what do you have to engage your appetites? Those of us who who came to Christ later in life understand what this is. If you are, were converted as an adult, unless you are motivated by the love of Christ, you are left to your glands, your bodily appetites. And that is true of this person. And it gets worse because not only do they engage in rebellion, but they revel in it. They glory in their shame. Instead of glorying in the cross of Christ, that which God has done in Jesus' resurrection, they glory in their sinfulness. And then it says, finally, their minds are set on earthly things. This is what 
Ephesians 4 describes as the futility of one's thinking. It's the inability to raise your sights above the horizon of this world to see that there is a God, that there's more to life than the here and now. The end of reality is death, and this person is unable to see anything more beyond that point. Their mind is set, fixed, captivated, anchored in this world, and death is the end. The Italian playboy Casanova conveyed this idea. He resented the thought of death because it threatened to remove him from the stage of history before the show concluded. Simone de Beauvoir said that death is the reason for anxiety precisely because it is, quote, the inescapable reversal of all of our projects. I like how Nietzsche described it. The arrival of death, he said, is always like the scene at the last moment before the departure of a ship full of immigrants. People have more to say to one another than ever. Time presses. The ocean with its desolate silence is waiting impatiently behind all the noise. So greedy and certain of its prey. Everyone wants to be first in this future. And yet death and the silence of death are the only things certain and shared by all in this future. How strange that this, the only certainty and commonality, makes practically no impression on people and that the last thing they feel is their brotherhood in death. Paul says they have minds set on earthly things. But my friends, it would be wrong for us to conclude that these temptations and sins are true only of those who've turned their back and are now enemies of Christ. Let's be honest. We feel the undertow of these sins. We feel the current of this death running through our souls. We too fail to lift our sights above the horizon and believe what we believe with regard to Christ and the gospel. All too often, I am motivated by the impulses of my fleshly desire and not glorying in the the cross of Christ as we are intended to. And so here's the enemy. Here's the current. But there's good news. Verse 20. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at first blush, this seems like one of those escape-from-reality verses. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here, so don't be concerned about what happens now. Just, Just curl your toes underneath the sand and hang in there, because one day Jesus will return and save us from this place. I'd like to suggest that that's precisely the opposite of what Paul is trying to say here. To understand what Paul means by citizenship, we would benefit from an understanding of how the Roman Empire operated with regard to colonies. Philippi was a Roman colony. There were certain 
Roman citizens who went to Philippi, located in Asia Minor, quite a distance away from the peninsula of Italy, and they established this colony. And the purpose of it was to embody and to establish all that was beautiful of Rome, the eternal city, to take the conventions and cultural distinctives of Rome and bring them to bear on this foreign place so that Philippi was an outpost of Rome. All that you could think of, art, literature, law, commerce, the postal system, the roads, the aqueducts, fashion, every dimension of society was to be brought from Rome to this city called Philippi. So that when you walk through Philippi, you would have felt as though you were there in the eternal city, Rome itself. My friends, we are citizens of heaven. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. That is our reality. That is where our identity is founded. And our calling as men and women in Christ is to take that reality of Christ and his kingdom and bring it to bear upon our world. Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We proclaim the gospel because we believe that the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to change lives And in that way, the beauty, the truth, the rule of God extends in this world, and it is transformed. Our citizenship is in heaven. What confidence this brings us, that God is committed to working through his church in order to advance his kingdom in this world. What would this look like here at College Church? What would this look like in Wheaton and Carroll Stream and Glen Ellen and Warrenville and all the surrounding towns where we live? Well, let me suggest a first step. What would happen if all of us were to pray for our neighbor? If we were to love our neighbors by simply praying for them? I wonder, do you know the names of your neighbors? The people who live across the street? The people who live to your left and to your right? Do you know the names of their children? Do you know the names of the folks who live beside them? I don't know all the names of those on my street. This, this Christmas season, I went down our block, handed out cookies. I brought my little boys who sang I was really tired of hearing that song that Jen Wheatley had them sing ad nauseum in the house. So I said, let's go out, boys, and share it with the neighbors. (laughs) And they were mystified. I mean, you should have seen the expressions on these people's faces. It was incredulity. Well, that was a first step. What if we all were to learn the names of our neighbors and pray for them regularly? Oh, how the kingdom would begin to advance through us. And this is indeed what we'll 
addressed tonight as we gather in the commons and we pray. We'll be praying for the outreach of our church. And this gives us hope because of verse 21 also. Speaking of this Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who comes back, Paul says, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We have lowly bodies. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls them bodies of death. This week, I had several days of hospital visitation. I was reminded of the extent to which so many of us struggle. But the good news, my friends, is that there's a day coming when Jesus will return and he will stop the undercurrent of sin and death once and for all. This constant gravity towards sin which we feel tugging upon us each and every day, will be done away with. And furthermore, we will have bodies that reflect the power and the life and the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. During Christmas time, I watched a YouTube of my favorite singer, Andrea Bocelli. Two of my colleagues didn't know who Bocelli was. There should be a form of church discipline for that. (laughs) And I heard Bocelli singing my favorite song, Nessun Dorma. And if you've ever heard this aria, you know how it takes your breath away. And the song begins in these dark, subdued tones. Now, some of you are looking at me nervous as though I'm going to sing this song. Let me assure you, I'm not going to sing this song. I would hurt myself if I tried. But it starts with this this gravity, this austere, serious, dark feeling. The cold-hearted Queen Torundot has threatened the lives of her subjects, and you can feel that threat in the air as the unknown prince begins to sing. And then, as the aria reaches its finale, the, the prince sings of his victory. And three times he exclaims it, with the Italian word vincero, which means I shall win. And so he says, I shall win. I shall win. And then that final note that takes your breath away, I shall win. And one of the reasons I'm so impressed with this song, beyond its beauty, is that it reminds me of the gospel. That because Jesus has already won in his resurrection, the day is coming when we will share in that victory in the resurrection. And so what we feel now in the undertow of death is only temporary. It has a sure end. Well, what is the implication of this promise? Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Notice the endearing terms that Paul uses to describe the church. Brothers, whom he loves, he longs for, his joy is crowned, his beloved. 
This is the heart of a pastor writing to a church whom he loves, exhorting them for their own sake to stand firm so that they will experience life, so they won't be washed out to sea and drown as these false teachers are inviting them to do. And oh, how this speaks to us, all of us, at this very point, looking forward to 2011. On New Year's Eve, the Castaldo family had a little project. They took out a whiteboard. My wife Angela grabbed the calendar, and we went month by month recounting the blessings of God over the last year. And as we wrote different experiences down, it was remarkable to see how many twists and turns there were in the course of the year. Things that we didn't expect. Places that we went to, surgeries, failed adoption process, a new daughter. I mean, it was just all over the place. And you look at that and you think, this is scary because looking forward to 2011, there is so much of what all of us will encounter that is beyond our control. That's life, isn't it? There are some of us sitting here this morning who won't be with us this time next year. It's sobering. And it can be a source of terrible anxiety and fear. Except for the fact that we have the promise of God as it comes to us in this passage. That we have, firstly, men and women who serve as godly examples, who help us to stand firm and resist the undercurrent of death. We also have a great commission. We have a calling. We have a reason to wake up each and every day, and it is to share the good news of Jesus with this lost and dying world. And so the love of Christ compels us. As ambassadors for Christ, we go into this world And then finally, we have God's promise of final redemption. That the the misery that we see in this world, the pull of death upon our hearts, is temporary. And the great day is coming when Jesus will return and will transform this fallen world and make it new. And that's our hope. And so therefore, we can stand firm. We can look at this upcoming year with real optimism, real confidence, and real hope. And so my friends, let me encourage you. As you look forward with your families, would you look to Jesus and resist the undertow? Amen.